Welcome to episode 16 in the second season of Justice with John Carpe, the podcast from the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms. I'm the show's producer, Kevin Steele, and with me is our host, John Carpe, who is the president and founder of the Center. For over a year, a great many people across the world have lived in fear of COVID-19. The corporate media, public health officials, and the politicians that they control have continually fed this fear with misinformation, where at daily press conferences they've emphasized case numbers based on inaccurate PCR tests. They've exaggerated the death tolls and told us many a lie about how we were overwhelming the healthcare system. And as a consequence of their own misinformation, they've implemented novel draconian preventative measures, such as lockdowns, that are not supported by science. The fear has been spoon-fed to us, and the fear is very real. But many are now saying we have nothing to fear but fear itself. We can return to normal, as we have in ages past following much worse pandemics, by putting this disease in the proper perspective, in the proper context, looking clearly at the numbers, the stats, by taking reasonable precautions, and above all, by not living in fear. And for some advice on this, we can turn to you, John. Tell me, why should we not be afraid of COVID? Well, the Justice Center is going to release a paper on this in the next few days. It'll be out by uh, May 1st, I think. And uh, we have come up with 10 reasons. I guess you could come up with fewer reasons or more reasons, depending on how you break it down. Uh, but I want to start out with just putting it in context with risk assessment. And this is something we do unconsciously, unwittingly, frequently, uh, in particular, when we get into our motor vehicle, either as a driver or a passenger. And there are 160,000 motor vehicle accidents on Canadian roads every year. And around 2,000 Canadians die every year in motor vehicle accidents. So we've got 2,000 deaths per year. In addition to those deaths, and some would say it's an even bigger impact in some ways, you've got people that are harmed by, that didn't die, but that get harmed by right. it. Anything from you know lifelong back pain to brain damage to quadriplegia, or maybe on the opposite side of the spectrum, maybe it was just mild emotional distress and and no uh, no physical damage. We got two thousand deaths, and of those, uh, four fifths of those are for people under the age of sixty five. So this kind of hits all age categories. There is some disproportionality with the drivers in their twenties having a higher fatality rate than drivers in their sixties and seventies. But it does it does impact all age groups. And yet, individually, millions of Canadians make the daily decision to drive or to be a passenger in a motor vehicle. And so there is no such thing as a risk-free life. And we have to bear that in mind and take a same commonsensical approach when we're looking at COVID, for example, and say, you know, there's not going to be any strategy that's going to prevent every single COVID death. And of course, looking at the, the people that have died of COVID or with COVID, you've got three quarters of them are elderly and very sick people in nursing homes that already have one, two, and often three or more serious health conditions who, apart from COVID, uh, we're all going to die as well, right? So we have to put that into the relevant context as well. Uh, when you listen to media talking about COVID and the chief medical officers and the politicians, they speak as though 
were it not for COVID, nobody would ever die. That almost seems to be their, uh, their starting point when they breathlessly report that uh, Martha Smith, age 93, died of COVID. And this is with, it's like, well, okay, but she was 93. She was in poor health. If COVID wasn't there, I mean, you know, it, it's, uh, mm-hmm. it's a weird space. So as a country, we should treat COVID with the same careful risk assessment that we apply to our driving habits. And you don't solve, or you could solve the problem of the 2,000 motor vehicle deaths per year and the many multiples, more than 2,000 of, of all kinds of injuries, mild, moderate, and severe. You could solve that problem by saying, well, we're just not going to drive our cars at all, or we're going to ban private car ownership, and then we wouldn't have all these motor vehicle deaths. I'm not sure if we wouldn't still have motor vehicle deaths if we all switched to public transit. But but let's say that, you know, okay, we can save 2,000 lives, but what is the price? What is the expense? What is the cost? What is the trade-off? You know, does this make sense? So 10 reasons not to fear COVID. Sounds good. Nice round so, number. Number one, COVID simply isn't the unusually deadly killer that it's made out to be. And so context matters. In 2020, over 300,000 Canadians died in 2020. Uh, people dying of COVID or with COVID was about 15,000. So you've got COVID deaths at roughly 5% of total deaths, not a significant portion. The other thing that has not changed from previous years is that cancer, heart diseases, and respiratory diseases continue to make up more than half of the deaths in the country. So these three big killers are still the three big killers. Nothing's really changed from, uh, from previous years in 2020. Second reason not to fear COVID is that it has only a negligible impact on life expectancy. Uh, we see this from Statistics Canada data that the uh, death rates in 2020 in Canada were very consistent with death rates in 2019, 2018, 2017. We see it from the data provided by Alberta Health Services and other provincial data that the people dying of COVID, more than half of them are over 80, more than half of them are already older than the average life expectancy. This is a disease that is harmless for children and uh, has very little impact on uh, on people under the age of 70. It doesn't take a lot of years off of your life. And that's relevant because the way to measure the impact of diseases is to ask how much do they shorten your life by, right? Because we're all going to die. Uh, nobody's escaping death. So... The big question is, is this a disease that is taking, you know, days, weeks, months, years, decades off of people's lives? If there's a disease going around that's killing uh, young adults in their 20s, or if we had a huge wave of suicides amongst people in their 20s, that is taking a lot of years off of people's lives, right? If a a 20-year-old commits suicide, that's a loss of a lot of years of life. And it's a it, it's a smart way to to measure the impact of diseases because at the end of the day we don't truly save lives. I mean, all we can do is delay death. So you look at the impact of COVID on life expectancy, and it is minimal. Okay, so just to recap quickly, those are big ones because you know it's not as deadly as they say it is. And how would you sum up the second one? It's not as deadly as they say it, it has. Is. <laughs> Okay. has a negligible impact on life expectancy. Right. 
And it's not killing, it's not killing, uh, great numbers of people, particularly when you have Mm. the situation, you know, when, when Jerry Dunham, who, uh, whose heart was functioning at 25% capacity, who needed pacemaker surgery, whose pacemaker surgery got canceled by chief medical officer, Dina Hinshaw and premier Jason Kenney, and then died two weeks before Father's Day, leaving two grieving daughters, then age of six and eight. When Jerry Dunham died, the nurse was asked, the the mother of the children, should we list this as a COVID death? And they were quite yeah. eager to put it down as a COVID mm-hmm. death. So the, I hear this all the time. People that had, you know, they died of a heart attack or they got into a fatal car accident and they're putting it down as a COVID death. It's happening all the time. And public health officials have stated publicly that anybody who dies with COVID is deemed to have died of COVID. So these these government stats, um, even if taken at face value, it's not huge numbers of people. Again, the COVID deaths are 5% of all deaths in, in Canada. And that's if you take the government numbers at face value. Uh, the truth do. is, it's probably a lot less than 5%. Right. Yeah. Good. Okay. Fair enough. Third Numeral reason class. not to fear COVID is that its survival rate is 99.77%. So close to 100% survival rate. Uh, meta-analysis by Dr. John Ioannidis of seroprevalence studies published with a supporting scientific paper. The median infection survival rate from COVID is 99.77%. Even for uh, patients over 70, the survival rate is still 95%, which is pretty high. Uh, this reminds me of what a doctor told me. You can present the truth in a way that causes fear or in a way that does not cause fear. He says that, uh, you know, prior to 2020, you could tell an elderly person, look, the annual flu is going around. You've got a 1% chance of catching this flu and dying of it. Uh, You've got a 99% chance of not catching it or catching it and surviving. So you've got about a 1% chance of dying because the annual flu is going around. And most people in their 70s and 80s and 90s understand that they are vulnerable and that, you know, flu flu season is always a dangerous time of the year and you got your 1% chance of dying. Well, what's changed with COVID is instead of the 1% chance of dying that you had for the annual flu, you now have a 5% chance of dying, but you still have a 95% chance of not catching COVID or of catching COVID and surviving it. Now, how can you present this truth? Well, there's two ways. One is you could tell an elderly person your chance of surviving the annual virus has gone down from 99% down to 95%. So the virus this year is a little bit worse than previous years. Instead of having a 99% chance of, of not catching it or catching it and surviving, you're now down to 95%. That's not a really scary way to present it. Most seniors will go, oh, okay. So yeah, my chance of, uh, my chance of surviving this flu mm. season has gone from 99% chance of surviving down to a 95% chance. Okay, not going to lose sleep over it. The other way to present it, which is also true, is to say, your chance of dying of COVID is five times as high as your chance of dying of the annual flu. Right. Now that's scary. That's how you create fear in people. You tell them that your chance your chance of dying of COVID is five times as high as your chance of dying from the annual flu. It's true, but it's also true to say your chance of survival has gone from 99% down to 95%. Is this going to turn your world upside down? Is this going to make you want to 
thrust your children and grandchildren into poverty and despair and drug overdoses and suicides? Uh, is this reduction? And isolate in- yourself. And is this worth, you know, being put into solitary confinement uh, and, and you're totally cut off from your friends and family? Is that worth it? Because your survival chances have gone from 99% down to 95%. I mean, it's how you present your last it. years of life. Yeah. Your last year of life probably as well. So. so the fourth reason, and there's some overlap, but if you're young and healthy, you have little to worry about. Of the... 22,000-something Canadians who have died with COVID, and that's not the 2020 calendar. The 2020 calendar year, you're looking at 15,000 deaths. But if you look at March of 2020 to March of 2021, if you look at those 12 months, you're looking at 22,000 deaths. And so of the 22,000 deaths, only 304 of those were, which is 1.4%, were under the age of 50. So first of all, total COVID figures, it's 5% of the deaths in Canada. But then if you're looking at people dying of COVID or people dying with COVID under the age of 50, it's 304 deaths out of 300,000. So that's just a a fraction. Compare that to uh, car accident deaths for people under the age of 65, you've got 1,600 car accident deaths per year. You've got 300 COVID deaths for, for people under the age of 50. So if you're under 65, your your chance of dying in a car accident is five times as high as your chance of dying of COVID. And these are tiny numbers. And some people get upset and say, how can you talk about it? These are real people. And it's like, yeah, I understand And, you know, Jerry Dunham was also a real person who was killed by lockdown measures because they canceled his surgery. And the young people now killing themselves out of despair and and mental health problems from being forced to put all your relationships onto a two-dimensional computer screen. Those are also real people. And the people whose life savings were wiped out are also real people. So, you know, don't get on my case for talking about numbers because numbers are part of reality and we need to look at it. Reason number five, not to fear COVID. The media's cases do not refer to sick people. I've touched on this before. The PCR test does not diagnose COVID. It detects some remnant of a dead virus in your body. False positives are as high as 90%. And I've, I've seen this firsthand with somebody I know who got a positive result on a PCR test who was not sick with COVID or anything in the weeks prior or in the weeks afterwards. I can update that actually with uh, someone that I know who uh, has uh, a relative who has been diagnosed with COVID. Uh, The relative has symptoms. He has been diagnosed as well, and he is completely without symptoms. And Hmm. I think we're now into day four or something like that. So yeah, I can back it up. This is one of the new variants as well. So. Oh, yeah. Should we believe that the new variants are really deadly? I mean, Neil Ferguson told us in March of 2020 that COVID would be as bad as the Spanish flu and that millions and millions and millions of people would die. Uh, Of course, I read somewhere that, you know, with the variants, uh, most mutations are less deadly than the original virus because they have to, in order to survive, stop killing their hosts. So that's what I've read. (laughs) Now, I'm not sure. 
if that's the uh, the uh, definitive word on it. But uh, well, if that's the scientific go. truth, I mean, don't expect it to form part of the government and media narrative. Right. Yeah. Okay. But uh, but yeah, that's interesting. That uh, if that's true, that variants are less deadly than the original. That yeah. tend to be than. Yeah. Uh, See, I don't, I don't buy the fear-mongering now on the new variants. And, of course, I stand to be proven wrong. I mean, maybe a new variant will be like the Spanish flu. I, I don't know. But I think a healthy dose of skepticism is, uh, is called for and warranted when you look at the hostility that these people have to science, when they won't produce science when you ask for it, uh, when they won't produce scientific evidence in court, when they're asked to justify the violation of charter rights and freedoms, this government media cabal, uh, government media clique, mm. um, they, they, they're, not, they're not very science-friendly. Uh, that's become I would say very that, obvious. Yeah, I would say that it's not science they have an aversion to. I would say that it is having to answer questions. That's what they have an aversion to. You know, as long as they can craft it the way they want, you know, then they're fine. But he asked him a question and uh, go ahead. You get labeled as a unhinged, unhinged conspiracy theorist. That's right. how Jason okay. Kenny sees yeah. the uh, anti-lockdown people. We are unhinged conspiracy theorists. Well, we'll say that every episode go. along with the Stephen B. Hook update. Okay, go <laughs> yeah. ahead. Continue. So, um, you know, the, the media headlines, you know, so many thousands of cases. Uh, these are not sick people. These are people with a positive result on a uh, meaningless test that does not diagnose COVID. Uh, sixth reason not to fear COVID is that the number of severely symptomatic cases is extremely low. And, uh, you know, we know this, that uh, even when they are talking about ICU numbers, they usually don't mention the total ICU capacity because the COVID patients are still taking up only a fraction of the total ICU capacity. Mm -hmm. Seventh reason not to fear COVID is that asymptomatic spread isn't happening much. Ah, Stephen Buick update. Stephen Buick oh. is the communicate because this right on this point. He's the yeah. communications director for Alberta Health Minister Tyler Shandro, has been asked repeatedly. What, what, where is the science to back up the government's belief that healthy people, or asympt people without symptoms, asymptomatic people are significant spreaders of the virus? What science do you rely on? What medical reports, what medical evidence, what peer-reviewed studies do you rely on? And no answer. Uh, we got an answer That's last update. No answer from, from Stephen Buick. I've not had an email from him, uh, nor from so Health Minister Tyler Shandro. Uh, nor any of the other health ministers across Canada that have been asked the same question. Oh Where's boy. the science on asymptomatic That's spread? breaking news. <laughs> well, we got one back We're from Nova Scotia. We're going to get a lot of mail about that. Sorry, what's that? We got one back from Nova Scotia last week. Yeah, that's right. Okay. And so. and they asserted, they asserted, uh, it was so cute. It is well established yeah. that uh, asymptomatic people spread covid it's so Period. well established no. that you can find it it's, yourself. And, and you can go find it yourself. Yeah. <laughs> that was the best part. Go do some research, John. It's like, well, no, this is the belief that is driving government policy. I mean, if asymptomatic people are not spreaders, we don't need social distancing or, or, or uh, hand sanitizing or uh, face masks. Or now, Yeah, you said in that, uh, when you introduced that, this point this time, you said not much. So I guess you're qualifying it a little bit. You're not saying asymptomatic spread is 
No, I've always said they're not significant spreaders. There is a little bit of it. You can be pre-symptomatic for a few days and there can be some spread. Okay. But but then I revert back to how this is not an unusually deadly killer, and unless you're unless you're 85 and in a nursing home and sick with uh, multiple serious health conditions, then statistically this is not a uh, it's not anything to worry about. And people will give you examples. Okay, but there's this you know healthy 50 year old that that got COVID and died. Okay, mm. yes, but you don't base your you don't base your life, uh, like driving a car as an example, you don't base your life on the one in 10 million chance that that you are going to be the unlucky person today that's going to get killed while driving your car. I mean, there is that one in, you know, whatever the statistic is, you'd have to figure out how many people are driving and how many hours and how many kilometers, and then, you know, take your 2000 car deaths and then say, okay, specifically, your chance of dying today while driving your, your car is you know, one in a million, one in 10 million, one in a hundred thousand, whatever, right? Mm. Um, you have to, you have to look at it that way because you can't base your laws and your economy and your entire society on the basis of uh, something that is going to impact one in a million people. Right. Yeah. And I think it, I think it, I and think it does boil down to that way. Sorry. your, your healthy, your healthy, uh, 60 year old, your healthy 40 year old that gets COVID and dies that literally is one in a million. Mm. So do we do we destroy the economy? Do we cripple society? Do we force people into poverty and despair and anxiety and stress and depression and loneliness and isolation? Do we cripple an entire entire society because there's a one in a million chance that a healthy under sixty person is going to get COVID and die? Is that good? Is that just? Is that rational? to destroy the economy and cripple society because of this one in a million young, healthy person that gets COVID and dies. I would say yes, because that's what we're doing. I mean, that's <laughs> no, no, I'm not. I, I realize it was rhetorical. Anyways, continue on. Eighth reason infection fatality rates confirm there's little danger. So we've got stats here from the center for disease control. And so in the, Zero to 17 age group, there are 20 deaths per million infections. So this is 0.002%. So that's one-fifth of 1% of 1%. I mean, it's we're, we're down to zero. Hmm. Um, in the 18 to 49 year old, you have 500 deaths per million. We're at 0.05%. So one-twentieth of 1%. In the... Uh, 50 to 64 age group, 6,500 deaths per million, two-thirds of 1%. Okay. So now we're we're still well below 1%, but if if it's 50 and up, for 50 to 64, we're getting into two-thirds of 1%. And then 65 and over, it's 90,000 per million. That's 9%. So that is uh, infection fatality rate. And so, again, we know about this virus that if you're 65 and over, the older you get, the more dangerous that it is. But because we know what that vulnerable demographic is, it also means that we can come up with intelligent, creative solutions to protect that vulnerable demographic. That's the stupidity of lockdowns. It's imposing misery and poverty and suffering and massive damage to mental health and physical health on the entire population 
maybe that could be justified if COVID was killing everybody at an equal portion. Uh, although I, I don't think it would be. It's still not the smart way to go. But we know who the vulnerable are, which means that there's no need for for these lockdown measures that hurt everybody. Right. And uh, I should just interject right here on that. Uh, there was a study uh, that uh, was highlighted today in the news from, I think it was MIT, regarding social distancing, that uh, it doesn't work. Mm. So, uh, yeah, there we go. So, knock that it one down. Takes ties right in with the ninth point. Casual contact is not enough to transmit COVID. Ninth reason mm. not to fear COVID. The New England Journal of Medicine has reported that significant exposure to COVID was defined as, quote, face-to-face contact within six feet of a person with COVID symptoms that is sustained for at least a few minutes. Some people say you need at least 10 minutes or 30 minutes. So if you're in a small room with a person who's sick with COVID for 10, 20, 30 minutes. So if you're locked down with. (laughs) Yeah. Locked down with. Yeah. So those who fear catching COVID from a casual encounter in public place, they they have no good reason to do so. Uh, the Anxiety and Depression Association of America comments, quote, thus wearing a mask when walking outside alone is not necessary. It's the equivalent of wearing a helmet when walking around your neighborhood. Although it provides a layer of protection from reckless motorists and bicyclists, unless you have a severe falling issue, it is unnecessary from a statistical standpoint. So yeah, wearing a mask outdoors is like uh, wearing a helmet when going for a walk outside on the off chance that you get hit by, you know, a car or a cyclist. Another news story today, the CDC said that if you're vaccinated, you don't have to wear a mask outside. (laughs) Okay, well, I didn't even realize the CDC said you had to wear a mask outside. (laughs) But apparently if you're vaccinated, you don't have to know, you no longer have to wear a mask outside. Which I've well, never done anyway. So l- less than a year ago, the World Health Organization and the CDC were all saying that mask wearing was useless. And this, as you've pointed out on a previous episode, Kevin, that that this has been fought out by nurses' unions that objected yeah. to being forced to wear masks and were we successful before that, yeah. uh, before a tribunal because the science is not there. Mm-hmm. Um, tenth reason not to fear COVID is that the science uh, isn't that settled, and. Um, there's a quote there. Uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci was asked by CNN's John Berman about the Biden administration's promise to make its decisions based on science. Question asked of Dr. Fauci was, what's the science behind not saying it's safe for people who have been vaccinated, who have received two doses, to travel? And Dr. Fauci says, when you don't have the data and you don't have the actual evidence, then you've got to make a judgment call. Well, and go. that's what we've been having a lot of judgment calls, in my view, very bad ones in the past 13 months. Charter defying judgment calls as well. That's where we come into play, right? Yeah. Challenge those. <clears throat> well, I would just like to offer one observation or criticism of your 10 points there. I think that you could probably rename the report Nine Reasons COVID is Not an Unusually Deadly Killer. I mean, really, that's what you're saying here. All nine points. Basically, it's not the deadly killer they have been saying it is. And here are the various stats from just about every different angle that you can think of that prove that point. So I think that that's what I will emphasize. Yeah, it's just not 
the threat they said it was, or even say it is. You know, I mean, it's still going. Oh, they're still today. they're still saying it every day. I mean, why why is it illegal to get together with a bunch of guys and uh, you know play poker at somebody's house on a Saturday night and enjoy a few beer? Why is that still illegal? Why is it illegal to play team sports? Why are my daughters not allowed to go to a martial arts class? Why are they stuck in their living rooms, you know, doing a vastly inferior Zoom class? I mean, Zoom is better than nothing, but there's no substitute for being together with the other kids in the dojang, or I think in karate it's called dojo, uh, in taekwondo it's called dojang, to be there with the instructor. You know, when you're learning your your pattern, all these different moves, you have the instructor there and maybe can grab a hold of your arm and say, no, you know, you block this way, uh, not that way. Uh, and just the the inhumanity of it all. Everything's a two-dimensional computer screen. Um, mm. We are made for, uh, you know, there's research on touch deprivation and hug deprivation and research on isolation and loneliness and people who are not in con, people who lack in-person contact with others suffer far higher levels of mental health problems and physical health problems. This is common sense that every doctor knows, except for the chief medical officer who seems to think that we can just thrive off of two-dimensional computer screens all the time uh, without being able to connect with 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 friends. Well, John, it's a matter of balancing risk, isn't it? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so there's a uh, there's a lot of other uh, good data. the The paper is about twenty five pages in length, and I, I so I covered off the ten reasons. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's lots of uh, lots of other good content and data in there. The very last point to uh, t- to summarize the whole paper: the bottom line of COVID in Canada in 2021. First of all, of 38 million Canadians, very few of us are going to get sick. Amongst all who get sick, uh, almost all who get sick will get over it, survival rate being 99.77%. Roughly 99.96% of Canadians won't die from COVID, and that's even without vaccines. Now, it remains to be seen uh, whether these vaccines are going to be helpful or not, if the vaccines are helpful then the 99.96% is going to go to something even higher. But this is what yeah, happened well, in 20... That's in, what I, I saw a great meme on that. You know, How are we going to tell if the vaccine is working? Does the survival rate go up to 99.78? Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Instead of, instead of COVID survival being 99.77, yeah, COVID survival will go from 99.78. So then we'll know yeah. that the, uh, the vaccine was really effective. Yeah, definitely. Well... Of course, this whole purpose of this report is to calm people down, to take away their fear. And I think it's complete coincidence that you're issuing this report at the same time that you yourself are going to be a keynote speaker at an event, a summit actually, whose title is Truth Over Fear. And to me, this conference is very significant because uh, as I wrote to you when I was uh, given the information, this is a uniting of the international anti-lockdown forces. And there are some heavy hitters besides yourself. You know, you're a heavy hitter, boss. I don't know why they invited me. They they invited a lot of world-renowned experts and top-notch doctors and heavy hitters. uh, And then they also asked me to come and speak as well. (laughs) Yeah. On the page, though, it says, you know, (laughs) you're listed as John Carpe, attorney. (laughs) That's all. (laughs) 
Yeah, that's what the Americans. Attorney. Yeah, the Americans they they say attorney very frequently. They 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 don't yeah. use the word lawyer as uh, as often. Anyways, you can uh, I'll put a link down below to this uh, online summit. It's an online summit. You can register there. And uh, let's see, COVID nineteen and the Great Reset online summit. Truth over fear, April thirtieth, May second. Why don't you tell us a little bit about some of these heavy hitters? I would. The, what surprised me is right up the top they had uh, the keynote message from Archbishop Carl Maria Vigano, and uh, I of course heard a lot from this guy during the uh, American twenty twenty election. He wrote several open letters to President Trump, denouncing the globalist forces that were uh, attempting to defeat the populist movements around the world. So yeah, he's he's at the top, and then uh, there's also uh, Dr. Rainer Fulmich who will be speaking there. He's we actually did a program on him, or featured him in a program when we were talking about lawsuits. He's trying to get together some class action lawsuits in North America and in Germany, and uh, has had quite an impact internationally. And of course, we have Robert. F. Kennedy Jr., another keynote speaker. See, you're up there. Your name's in lights, you know. Uh, people should look at this list of 40 speakers. I think it's going to be worthwhile uh, signing up for. I don't think it's uh, – I don't think you have to pay to join, do you? Registration is free. Yeah. Uh, you can uh, – there's a special – I think if you want a special kind or different kind of registration, I think you can pay $80 for a package that has – Various features and contents, but there's. Uh, you have to buy your own wine and cheese and drink it in your. In front of I'm your looking computer. forward to listening to, uh, to to these people. I'm I'm going to take uh, take a day day off work, and um, all of these doctors and uh, authors, statisticians, well, they, environmental got the activists. They got a restaurant tour going up there. They've got uh, attorneys and child advocates, professors of preventative medicine, Dr. Roger Hodgkinson, pathologist and CEO. Oh, boy. I mean, Tony Roman heard. restaurateur. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Just yeah, Vera Sharav, concentration camp survivor. Oh, yeah. There we go. We've got Stephen Mosher, social scientist. Dr. Pierre Corey, critical care physician. Just that, yeah. This is Dr. Be... Miklos Lukash, research professor. Yeah, yeah definitely, well, I... uh, definitely sign up for this. Yeah, I think it's worth uh, publicizing, and uh, of course, John Carpe, attorney, will be speaking as well. So you'll get one more dose of him in that week, uh, which is, I think, quite an honor. And uh, like I say, this is seems to be when I saw this, I thought, okay, well, now the international forces that have been opposing all this stuff are finally getting together. Obviously, they're communicating to a certain extent with each other. At least their faces are all on the same page. Now, I don't suppose you have had any great contact with any of these people that I don't know of. Have you? Have you, John? Some of uh, some of the Justice Center lawyers have been in touch with uh, Reiner Fulmich or with Reiner Fulmich's associates because he's launched uh, court actions in Germany and uh, California, and I've heard him speak before, and he's he's an amazing speaker. It's self evident when you listen to him that he's he's done his homework, and uh, yeah, they're they're going after the who. That's the nice thing about it. That was the thing way back when when we featured him in a program that. Uh, struck me was the fact that they are going right to the top of this. And they have uh, their uh, 
what I consider a reasonable theory as to how this thing sort of spread around the world. Not the disease, but the fear. And that's what we're attacking here is the fear. So what are you going to say? Just tell me. I'm going to talk about Pastor Coates and oh, right. I'm going to talk okay. about the uh, how the government of Alberta is running away from the evidence in court. And in spite of having imposed lockdowns on us now for more than 13 months, mm-hmm. uh, when asked to present the medical and scientific evidence in court to justify the violations of our charter freedoms to move and travel and assemble and associate and worship, uh, suddenly you say, oh, no, we, we can't uh, produce any evidence. We need months and months to come up with that. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's outrageous. The government has an obligation from the get-go, even if the government's not being sued, you need that medical and scientific evidence to back up your laws and policies and, and health orders that are violating charter freedoms. You need that in place, whether you're getting sued or not. And then you're in court and suddenly... After violating our charter rights and freedoms for for 13 months, uh, they're saying, oh, no, we we just can't muster the medical and scientific evidence to back this up. Yeah. Well, okay, then when I saw your uh, little write-up under John Carpe attorney on that page, uh, the Truth Over Fear Summit page, it did mention your defense or the Justice Center's defense of Pastor Coates. And then I thought, okay, this story went a little more international than even I realized. I mean, they're talking about it as if everybody knows about it that's on that page. And I was like, okay, I guess uh, it was a really big deal around the world. That's something that's, I hadn't been. I'm sure a lot of Albertans are not happy about being, about Alberta being well known for this. You know, we're the, we're the jurisdiction that put a pastor in jail for holding a regular church service. And uh, that, then we built a double fence around his church to, prevent anybody from accessing it. Uh, this is... Uh, and it's made it, Jason, Jason Kenney has made Alberta famous internationally by jailing a pastor. So mm. I don't know if the government's... Uh, I think they're between a rock and a hard place now because, you know, what are they going to do? They, they, uh, yeah. They're not going to repent in uh, sackcloth and ashes and start apologizing for it. And at the same time, I haven't seen them doing this to other churches. So... Maybe they understand how much of a black eye that this is causing. Yeah, well, that's uh, that's the thing. I mean, it, if it did go as big as you know, it suggests by your write up here, they're talking about it like everybody knows about it. Then, uh, yeah, that's a massive black eye for my home province. Not proud of that. Uh, I, we're going to debrief you after you do your little uh, your big speech. At the summit, and I also want to hear some of your impressions afterwards about some of these speakers as well. I want to move on right now to something else. Uh, This is a ruling in the uh, federal court that came down. I had a little trouble understanding what went on. Maybe you could tell me. The government agreed, as the headline says uh, on the Justice Center page, uh, agrees isolation hotels violate charter protections against arbitrary detention, comma, declines to issue injunction. Well, I'm not sure if that's a victory or is is this just a paper victory? Because they didn't do anything about it. They didn't. Maybe you could tell me what kind of victory this is, if it, if any. It's 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 a mixed result. I mean, it, okay. it's a defeat in the sense that we wanted an injunction to bring an end to this policy of treating Canadians coming back home like criminals by locking them up in a hotel for three days. 
uh, pending the results of a meaningless PCR test that, uh, again, does not diagnose COVID with any accuracy. Uh, on pain of a fine, it's my information, I haven't verified it, but a $3,400 uh, or is it a $4,300 fine? Anyway, the fine is a lot bigger than the 2000 that you would pay for the hotel. And I, I assume they put the fine level up that high because otherwise people would just say, oh, well, you know, I'll just pay a $1,000 fine and not pay five, not pay $2,000 mm. to get locked up in a hotel for three days. So the policy is going to uh, continue. And so that is not a victory. And you're going to keep on seeing more and more Canadians coming back by land. I heard anecdotally, I don't know if it's true, but the American car rental companies are getting a little tired of Canadians that want to rent a car and drive in, you know, and then pay extra money for a drop-off fee. And I guess it caused some temporary problems in the supply of rental cars because you really? you can rent a car and then say, I don't want to return it here. I, you know, I want to, uh, yeah. I want to. To drive a car from Toronto to Windsor or from Edmonton to Calgary and drop it off at my, you know, and, and they'll let you do that for an extra fee. But apparently there were so many Canadians that were uh, wanting to rent a car, you know, and then pay the extra hundred bucks or whatever to leave the car in Canada. Really? <laughs> were, well, you know what that, uh, maybe it'd be worth it to rent a car in Canada and drive it to the United States. Maybe you get a pretty good rate. What do you think? Okay. Just a ah, okay, yeah. <laughs> you got a real serious look on your face right there. Yeah, not bad idea. I, I know somebody. I know somebody that's going to a conference in the U.S. in June, so I'll pass it along as a, as a tip that maybe you can rent a car on the cheap in uh, Calgary and uh, drive it back into Montana or something. That's probably I'm worth guessing, exploring. right? You know, it's it's not a guarantee. Or I'm just going by the law of supply and demand. You know, so. So back to the court case, what yeah. was positive is that the uh, the court recognized expressly that these uh, that the the Trudeau policy of prison hotels is clearly a violation of charter rights and freedoms. Uh, so that is positive. I think we'd be in deep trouble if there was not a uh, court recognition of that. Hmm. And the court was not prepared to give us the interim injunction. This was not the final ruling. This was a ruling asking to suspend the policy immediately while the court action is still ongoing. So we were turned down on that. I mean, the same thing happened with our uh, action in Alberta. We tried to save Christmas and asked for an interim yeah. injunction against the lockdown measures. And, uh, you know, we, we failed. We did not succeed. And so, you know, Jason Kenney prevented uh, family members from spending Christmas together. But um, so similar situation here, we... Uh, we did not get the interim injunction. The trial is going to start June 1st. Uh, so this will be a trial on the evidence uh, that will go on for a few days. And the uh, we've got evidence on our side. The federal government's got evidence on their side. But it should be, should be interesting to cross-examine these uh, federal people and say, what was wrong with Canadians quarantining at home for two weeks, assuming that that was even necessary. And we're not right. disputing that in this in this court action. But what was wrong with people going home? And, and aren't you spreading COVID more when you're getting a whole bunch of strangers that are flying in from different countries and forcing them to spend time together in a hotel? <laughs> not bad, yeah. The you implication know, and, here. And if, if, yeah. if asymptomatic spread is true, 
are we not endangering people more by instead of going from the airport and going straight home, now you have to go to a hotel and you got to register there and hang out at the hotel and, uh, you know, mix and mingle with others possibly uh, and then go home. You're adding a lot of mixing and mingling to what would otherwise be a straightforward trip straight back home. Mixing and mingling without locks in your doors. Remember that one as well. Right? Yeah. So that's a bad one. Okay. The implication of these two points here, one that they would say that it is against the charter, but that they would allow it to continue. That to me implies that they think it is demonstrably justified. Isn't that the implication here? It's an excellent or question. The test on the injunction is different from the test in the main action. So in the main action, the onus is on the government to demonstrably justify the violation of charter rights and freedoms. What happens on an injunction application is that the court the court starts out with a presumption that the law is valid and then does a different kind of analysis of the, the balance of convenience and still does take a look at the harms and the benefits, but it's a, it's kind of a balancing of, of harms and benefits that is more favorable to the government because there's a presumption there that, that the law is valid. Mm-hmm. And so the test favor, it's, it's hard to win on an interim injunction and the test favors the government. In the main action, the test is, uh, is the violation of, of charter rights and freedoms demonstrably justified with evidence as necessary and, and beneficial in a free and okay. democratic society. So losing, losing the interim injunction application is not really, doesn't tell you one way or the other how you're going to do on the main action. Okay. There's one other point in here that mystified me a little bit, and that was, uh, I'm just going to read from the press release here. The court also accepted without reserve the Justice Center's reminder that in a time of emergency, the role of an independent judiciary in safeguarding charter rights and freedoms takes on additional importance. Okay, so it sounds like you guys complimented the judiciary and they agreed. Is that all? that happened. I mean, you said they're important. They said, yeah, we are important. Um, but especially important in, in a time of crisis where okay. rights and freedoms get trampled on. And we could think of ex- historical examples in Canada, like the imposition of the War Measures Act in um, in September of, uh, or sorry, in October of, of 1970, the so-called mm. October crisis, where the uh, FLQ, the Quebec Liberation Front, was a terrorist group that was putting bombs and mailboxes and they engage in kidnapping and at least one murder. And so the Pierre Elliott Trudeau, the senior Trudeau, imposed the War Measures Act. And as a result, hundreds of people were rounded up by police and jailed without being charged with any offense uh, mm. and were detained without charges. And those are, you know, that's one of the differences between a a free society and a, and a repressive regime in a free society, you can only be you can only be arrested when you're charged with something. So the police officer says, "I charge you with shoplifting. I charge you with murder. I charge you with fraud. I charge you with having committed an offense." So you stand accused, and now I'm going to arrest you based on these charges. And then when you're detained, you cannot be detained indefinitely. You can only be detained if you've been charged with an offense. And your detention gets reviewed within 24 hours by a 
a justice of the peace or by a judge. Mm. So the presumption is in favor of release and right. Whereas in a repressive regime, the government say, well, we're just arresting you. Like when the war measures act was imposed, the police rounded up FLQ sympathizers and suspects, right? So the FLQ, this is not in the internet age. So they probably had a mailing list. They probably had a newsletter, you know, or even if they didn't have a newsletter, they probably at their somewhere, there was a sheet of paper with a list of names and phone numbers. So police got a hold of that. So mm -hmm. hundreds of people were arrested on suspicion of being involved with the FLQ or members of the FLQ. All these people got arrested without being charged with any offense, but just like, hey, you're a suspicious character. The War Measures Act is in place. We're fighting terrorism. You're coming down to the police station. And some of these people may have been held a few hours, some of them a few days, some of them longer. Right. So we do have that history in right. in Canada of um and then we have the internment of the Italian Canadians and the internment of the Japanese Canadians during the Second World War. Mm. So it's especially at a time of crisis. That's when that's when rights get violated the most. Right. Of course. Right. Yeah. You get the October crisis. Canadians are pretty nervous about you get this FLQ group. And I don't think it was active outside of Quebec. Uh, right. So the rest of Canada, you know, you didn't have to worry about a, a bomb in your mailbox. But but in Quebec, you did. And uh, so people are scared. And they're scared of an armed revolt, armed resurrection. And so then the government takes away rights and freedoms when people are afraid. And same with the internment uh, of the Japanese Canadians who lived on the BC coast, many of whom were second generation, third generation, fourth generation. I mean, these are a lot of the Japanese Canadians. They were ethnically Japanese, but they had no connection to Japan. Right. Yeah. And yet there was a fear there when Pearl Harbor was bombed December 7th, 1941. And so we were at war with Japan and that there might be a Japanese invasion of Canada or the United States, right? The Japanese army might land on the North American Pacific coast and invade. And there is a fear that the Japanese Canadians in the greater Vancouver area, many of whom were fishermen and were right on the coast that they might collaborate with the invading Japanese army. And this is all suspicion. It's all theory. There's nothing proven. In fact, uh, the RCMP had told the federal government not to proceed with the internment because the RCMP had, on its own initiative, rounded up a small number of individuals that the RCMP deemed to be dangerous. So there were, there were in fact, a handful you know, I don't know if it's five or six or a dozen or two dozen, but they didn't realize that they had, uh, they had actually, Oh, okay. Right. So there, there, there were, there, there were a very, very small number of Japanese Canadians. Now, I don't know if they were actually a danger to Canada or sympathetic, but they were, they were perceived by the RCMP as being possible collaborators. Mm. They were a problem. Right. So the RCMP had done its work to round up these people and, you know, uh, and the RCMP said, Forget about the rest. They're all good. And still, in wartime, people are afraid. They were terrified of these Japanese Canadians. And so the federal government forced all these Japanese Canadians to move into the interior of BC. And I think there were also work camps in Alberta. These were not concentration camps. Uh, you know, there were no gas chambers. There wasn't, you know, they, they were not killing the Japanese Canadians. But they were certainly, they were prison camps and they were work camps. And you were forced to be there. 
it wasn't a polite request with an option to say yes or no. If you were a Japanese Canadian, you were told you were forced to move from BC. And the Americans did the same thing. In, in California, there were Japanese American communities where these people were forced to move inland into work camps in case there was a Japanese invasion of California, then these Japanese Americans would not be out and about and, and able to assist the incoming army. Yeah, let's just uh, just to finish the story. They also took all their stuff. I was going to get to that. They confiscated <laughs> well, I, their property. They yeah, confiscated okay. their property and, and uh, no compensation was provided. I mean, yeah. their fishing boats were sold, their homes were taken, and no compensation provided. Okay. So this is what fear does. Fear leads to the violation of rights and freedoms. And that's what's happening exactly right now with the COVID. And I'm hoping that this uh, paper, which will be on our website, but probably by the time this podcast is released, it'll be up there. The purpose is to try to uh, educate the open-minded, middle-of-the-road people who are neither strongly anti-lockdown nor strongly pro-lockdown. So open-minded, thoughtful people that you know are willing to listen and so that this will be a tool that uh you know if you want to make a difference if you want to do something to get us out of these lockdowns take that paper and send the link to people that you know and say hey have a read here are 10 reasons uh not to be afraid of covid okay i just want to go back though a second just because i was wondering about the significance of the court agreeing with you because when i read that you guys emphasizing it in your press release i thought at first uh, the court is saying oh boy here we come we are going to start throwing our weight around here because we are needed am i reading too much into that uh, i hope you're not i i don't know if you're reading too much into it okay. the, the trial will be in june and th you know these these court decisions uh you're lucky to get something within a few weeks Right. Uh, a few months is normal, and I've. I think this one though um, would be. I, I've been involved in court cases where the the decision was released eleven months, twelve months, thirteen months after oral argument, so right. they can take up to a year to come out. This one, because it involves a a current actual live violation of charter rights and freedoms, and I. I don't think anybody can dispute that you know being forcibly locked up in a hotel room for three days is is a violation of your liberty as a right. citizen to be out and about and go where you please when you please. That's a basic human right that we all possess, right? The government should only be locking you up if you're you've been convicted of a crime. Um, so because these are ongoing current violations of charter freedoms, I'm hopeful that the federal court after hearing the evidence and listening to oral argument in June, I'm hopeful that they're going to issue a uh, decision sooner rather than later. I hope it, it's not going to be one of these ones that, you know, comes out a year later. Mm -hmm. Yeah, me too, for sure. Okay. Well, that's, it's great that you're releasing this paper at the same time that this summit is going on because, uh, you know, it's very easy to tie them together with the uh, overcoming fear. I think that's, we're at that point right now with them ramping up uh, the lockdowns. This is the time to start spreading the, uh, the word that I guess we should all cheer up a little bit and maybe go outside without a mask and enjoy the spring weather. Anyways, I think we can probably let people do that right now by calling an end to 
episode 16 of Justice with John Carpe. Look forward to hearing from you about your speech at the summit, and we'll talk to you next week. All right, Kevin, have a great week.